Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 52. Again, that's Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 52. If you don't have a Bible with you today, uh, if you look in the pews or under the seats in front of you, uh, you should see Bibles there. Uh, you can turn to page 769 there. So. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. This is the word of the Lord. As we begin today, I just wanted to start off first by saying we're going to start something that I'm calling the Smaller Group Initiative. It's like small group, but smaller. And so if you want to know a little bit about it, uh, we're going to continue to uh, share this with you. I hope that we could get it started in October, but it really stemmed from the people in our church who really wanted a group that was accountable, uh, that we can pray with consistently and not too big. And so I invited those who are potential leaders to come and stay right after service, and then I'll share with you a smaller group initiative that I had. It's good to see you, and it's good to be with you, and I pray that the Lord will send you His Spirit to comfort you and give you understanding as we open up the Word today and this morning. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we ask you, imploring you, since all fullness of wisdom and light is found in you, to mercifully enlighten us by your Holy Spirit and the true understanding of your word, and to give us grace to receive it in true fear and humility. May we be taught by your word to place our trust only in you and to serve and honor you as we should, so that we may glorify your holy name in all our living and edify our neighbor by good example, rendering to God the love and obedience which faithful servants owe their masters and children their parents, since it has pleased you to graciously receive us among the number of your servants and children. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we come to the end of the third discourse of Jesus giving his parables, which was read just before. And we've seen from the last two weeks that parables weren't just feel-good stories that you would be able to tell your kids during bedtime. It's like, okay, you know, 
There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth after the weeds and the wheat are separated because the weeds will be thrown into the fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then your kid would ask, what's gnashing of teeth? Oh, it's where you're in so much anguish and pain that you grind your teeth off. Good night, sleep tight, and then you kiss the kid good night. That's not probably a good uh, bedtime story to tell. I don't know, maybe you're like, well, our house is hardcore. But this is interesting. Like when we initially thought of parables, a lot of people would think, oh, these are like nice stories. And then we continue to see throughout the chapter, um, they're pretty serious. They're serious things that we should also take seriously. And I'm not sure where we got this understanding that Jesus is soft or weak or ineffectual. And I have shared, you know, a little bit about my life and how as I grew as a pastor in training, sometimes I would sleep on chairs and just to pass the night so I can, you know, go to the service the next morning. And then I wake up and, you know, my, my arm will be numb because my arm will be on the armrest on the chair. And then I just shake it off and run down to service. But Jesus, Jesus was exposed to all the elements. He would say, the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. Jesus was not soft, weak, and ineffectual. This is not the Jesus that we see in the Bible. Even C.S. Lewis would depict Christ as Aslan in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Susan, right before she was about to meet Aslan, was scared and would say to Mr. Beaver, is it safe? And then Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good, and he's king. The Israelites and the readers of the Bible should know better. Because as terrifying and as dread-inspiring as Pharaoh and the Egyptians were, we're shown that God is more. And so when Jesus told the parables, they were serious, they were heavy, and they demanded response. If you had understood the parables that Jesus told, there will be no way, no way that you would have thought to yourself, hmm, that's deep. What else you got, Jesus? Because in verse 11, Jesus made it clear that if you did not understand, you were not a disciple, and only a disciple was given understanding. And as you will continue to see, Jesus will end this section with three more short parables that are seen only in Matthew's gospel. And Jesus connects the three parables with the word again. And perhaps signifying they should be understood together. And the question would be, but how are they connected? Again, if you have been following along, we learned last week that Jesus is now with his disciples after leaving the crowds into the house and so that the parables we hear now were meant for his disciples. And so, what is the kingdom of heaven like? The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. If you think about it, you may be thinking, because he found the treasure and didn't tell anyone, ooh, 
he may be an immoral man, or at least this was an immoral action. Because even the act of covering it up is fishy, isn't it? It should at least make us wonder. But there is a little doubt that if you are a listener in Jesus' day, that you would have thought this is a definite possible scenario in Jesus' time. This is a definite possible scenario in the world that they lived in. A journeying landowner, if they had some valuables, what they would do is they would go to Chase Bank. No, there was no Chase Bank, so they would go and they would bury the treasure and in a location that only he would know and remember. And if it was a place near where Jesus was telling this parable, then we know that this place was bordered to a lot of foreign nations and roaming soldiers who frequently looted places and people. And I've read that it was custom and possibly law that anyone who lifts treasure, the word lift is found in this writing, if you lifted something in a field, then you could keep it. Unless, unless the person lifting was under the employ of someone else. So if you are farming and then you are you know, harvesting and you take a corn, that's yours. Unless you're an employee of someone else and then that corn belongs to your employer. So if you lifted the treasure, it would have belonged to you anyway. But it was often, this happened often enough that people knew that sometimes a landowner would go away for a long journey. Perhaps it was to travel, perhaps it was to fight in a battle, and not to return, and wouldn't make it, wouldn't survive. And then that land would go to the next of kin, and if he didn't have any next of kin, his servants would continue to maintain it, or they would sell it. And if there were neither of all these things, it would just be put up uh, by the local magistrate. So at least, you know, the government can make some money off of it. In either case, when you look at this parable, the morality or legality of the action is not what the parable is dealing with. And if we spent any more time on it, we would be guilty of wasting our efforts on futile things. Because the parable is dealing with the value of the treasure. The value of the treasure is worth every sacrifice. Because when the man buys the field, even as such a sacrifice, he knows that he will possess far more than the price that he paid. This should bring us back to the time when Jesus first called his disciples and to the teaching of the cost of discipleship. The kingdom of heaven is worth infinitely more than the cost of discipleship. And those who know where the treasure lies joyfully abandon everything and anything else to secure it. J.C. Ryle will go on to write that when a man venture nothing for Christ's sake, we must draw the sorrowful conclusion that he has not got the grace of God. Once you know that there is treasure here, you would do anything to get it if you knew the value of the treasure. What is the kingdom like? Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Uh, the word for merchant would refer to more of like a wholesaler, more than a retailer. This is someone who travels back and forth and trades fine pearls for a living. 
Finding pearls weren't an easy task back in Jesus' day. You had to have divers go down to the water, get the oysters, open them up to see if there are any pearls inside, excavate it, right? Harvest it. And then you would take them out and then you would see if they were any good. Pearls were actually extremely rare until recently. Until recently where we are now able to harvest or produce these pearls in massive quantities. I've read that China is the leading producer and farmer and exporter of pearls today. <clears throat> For comparison, in 2010, Australia, which is another leading exporter of pearls, he's one of the leading farmers of South Sea marine cultured pearls, uh, was reported to have produced something like 10 tons, 10 tons of pearls. China that same year produced 20 tons of Akoya oyster pearls and 1,500 freshwater cultured pearls. So now you can just go on Amazon right now and buy a beautiful set of pearl earrings for 10 bucks. But a merchant back at the time would have come across such quantity and quality of different kinds and they would know better. Is this a good pearl? Is this a bad pearl? Is this a fine pearl? Or is this garbage? They will be able to feel it in their hands and know if the weight was off. Merchants knew that if you started to rub real pearls of good quality together, then a shear would come off like a dust, like a residue would come off. Fake pearls wouldn't do that. Fake pearls, you could rub it all day and nothing. They were just marbles. Merchants knew that if you took a real pearl and you dropped it from about four to five feet above the ground onto a glass floor, that it would bounce about two feet. Fake pearls wouldn't bounce that high. It wouldn't even go past a foot, and it will, or it would just thud onto the glass. This is a merchant that would know what a fine pearl's worth was. The merchant, upon finding one of great value, goes and sells everything that he has and buys that pearl. I'm going to take a break here. <clears throat> this isn't to mistake us to mean that you can buy the kingdom. Both of these parables aren't talking about you being able to buy the kingdom or earn the kingdom. That would contradict everything that Jesus had said so far. On the contrary, the one who finds the kingdom would sell or give up everything they had just to follow Jesus because they knew the value of what the treasure was worth. And Jim Elliot would say, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And so as an example, in life, I start picking things up, right? You pick up things and they are of value. They're of good value. That's not bad. You know, you have your life stages, your relationships, you know, your material goods, you know, the things that you've invested in, the people that you love, and you start holding it, and your arms become full. And then you can't hold anything else because this is all you're holding. Why would you ever let that go? You would let that go if you saw something of more value. You would be like, wow, that is of infinitely more value. And then you would put that down and pick this up. It's not that you bought it with this, but you would let it down so that you could pick it up. That's why Jim Elliott was the one who said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
You know, this parable is paralleled with each other, but with a twist. One person searches all his life to finally find it, and the other guy just trips over it. And people have contrasted it with the conversions of Saul, who his whole life lived as a pristine Pharisee, who knew the law in and out, who kept every single one. And I've heard people who who still try to live that way. There's 613 laws, I'm up to 603. I just got 10 that I can't do, referring to the Ten Commandments. But there's the conversion of Saul, who lived his whole life searching. And there's also, it's contrasted with the Ethiopian eunuch, who just happens to read the Bible passage, like, hey, what's this mean? And Philip, the evangelist, he chose him. This means Christ. He's like, why don't I get baptized? And he finds the treasure that way too. Whatever the case, the real connection of these paralleled parables is to show the supreme value of the kingdom. And these extreme measures are shown to show the extreme value of Christ. Augustine of Hippo would say, Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. And when you take these two parables together, there is a common characteristic flowing between the two protagonists. There are two, actually. Number one is urgency. It's urgency. When you find something of supreme value, you don't dilly-dally. You don't wait until the weather gets better. You don't wait until your life stage is in more of a comfortable place. You immediately go and do whatever you can to acquire it. You can tell if someone knows the value of something by the urgency in their actions. If I want everyone who wants a million dollars come and sign this sheet, and then you go, eh, Let me finish eating my cereal. Let me press the snooze one more time on my alarm. You would either say the person that does this is either a lazy fool or that person does not understand the value of a million dollars and thereby is a fool. It's urgency. If you knew the value, and this is what Jesus is showing. If someone re- recognizes the value of the treasure, which is the kingdom of heaven, there would be urgency in their actions, in all that they do. Number two, there is joy. In the first parable, it's explicitly stated. In the second, it's implied. If you've been searching for something all your life and you find it, you're going to be elated. Joy is a characteristic of someone who has realized the value of the kingdom and has received it. It's an overwhelmingly joyful experience because this was something undeserved and it was something you never thought you would find or never thought you could find. So what kind of heart and attitude would a disciple of Jesus have? Urgency and joy. Because... Because, in verse 47, Jesus goes, again. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathering, gathered fish of every kind. 
When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Upon reading this, you would have noticed the word again, which meant it was connecting the parable with the two prior parables. And you, you would think, mm, how are these two connect? How are these three connected? But you would also have recognized that verse 50, and throw them into the fiery furnace, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, is the exact same wording as verse 42 from the parable of the weeds. So there's something similar between this parable and the parable of the weeds. So again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net. The word for net is dragnet. Dragnet, if you don't know what it is, it's exactly how it sounds. It's a huge net that you would have dragged across the sea to catch fish. So you would have this, this uh, net, like if the net could be my arm and this could be the sea, and there's a bottom portion that's tied with ropes that people pull in, a top portion that the boat can start pulling in, and then you would see if this was the sea, you would just take this net and then just pull it all the way into shore. The disciples listening, especially because a lot of them were former fishermen, would have understood completely what Jesus was talking about. They would have known exactly what this looked like. Because by the time you got the dragnet onto the shore, it would have been filled with all kinds of sea creatures. And they and their workers would have taken time to sort out the good fish with the useless garbage. So Jesus says here that it's going to be like that at the end times, at the end of the age. But instead of fishermen, it's angels. Angels in employee of God. So God is the one directing, but it's angels who will be the one separating the evil and the righteous. And every evil, wicked, and adulterous person will be thrown into the fiery furnace. If parables had the ability to teach something that a person may have never seen or experienced, the imagery of the fiery furnace that Jesus gives is to show people what hell will be like. The kingdom of heaven is like, but he also shows what hell will be like. It will be a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is assured because it is the word of God. This is true because it is the word of God. You know, people may hate the quote-unquote fire and brimstone preaching of the previous century. But to completely to do away with the notion of hell because it offends your sensibilities is to say that you are more sensible than Jesus. Jesus is the one talking about hell. You might say, think or say or you may have heard, it's not kind and compassionate when you talk about hell. Is it because you're more kind and compassionate than Jesus? It's the preacher's job to expound and to, to, to teach exactly what the word of God exclaims. To do otherwise, we'd be preaching something other than the gospel. What we see here is sin and hell are bound together. Charles Spurgeon would even go on to say, sin and hell are married unless repentance proclaims the divorce. 
what we see again and again for the last three weeks, what we should have seen is Christ's lordship is an infinite joy for the disciple, but an infinite nightmare for others. And we see Jesus' words in these parables that show us that this is an unalterable reality. And he goes, have you understood these things? They said to him, yes. Yes, well, did they? I mean, he calls them dumb or dull in chapter 15. Perhaps they didn't fully understand, but they understand a little bit. Enough for now. And Jesus goes on. And Jesus continues on, verse 52. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. And you're like, what does this mean? And there are many, many scholars who have undertaken this interpretation. But therefore, that means in light of all these parables that Jesus has given in this third discourse, every scribe, who were the scribes? Scribes were teachers of the law, and they were usually cast in a bad light. But here we see these are scribes of the kingdom of heaven. And that means they were, that means he was referring to the disciples. So therefore, in light of all these parables, every scribe referring to the disciples is like a master of a house. And what does this master do? He brings out all of his treasure, new and old. By Jesus teaching his disciples these things, he was not only reaffirming that he was the fulfillment of the scriptures, but now they have new treasure in Christ to complete all the treasures that they were or they are to display. And why was this treasure to be put on display? Because that's what a scribe did. That's what a teacher does. Only the Old Testament scribes could only teach from the old treasure. The disciples, Jesus is showing them, have now both the new and old to teach and display. You know, the order here is of great importance. The parable shows that the disciple, it's the disciple that has this understanding. Not that the understanding generates discipleship. And it conforms perfectly to this chapter's structure. The disciples are not defined as having understanding. They're the ones that go, Jesus, why do you speak in parables? Jesus, what does this parable mean? They are not defined as having understanding, but are described as having been given revelation. They are given understanding, like in verses 1 and 11 and 12. But when the disciples ask for an explanation, they're given these explanations, and thus they can claim some measure of understanding. So yes, they can say yes. Therefore, is what Jesus continues on, a disciple of Jesus is like a scribe in recognition of the revelation of who Jesus is to bring out such rich treasures of the kingdom for display. And this leads us to the second point of this particular therefore. Jesus shows them in this therefore that, this, that his disciples will be the one to continue to carry on his teachings and the revelation that he gave them, which they did, which they did. But at what cost? I'm not talking about in reference to the cost of discipleship, but at what cost to the discipler? But at what cost to the teacher? You see, to fulfill the scriptures, just as Jesus was saying, the new and old, to fulfill the scriptures would have also meant 
that Jesus fulfilled the prophecy to be the foretold lamb who was to come. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because there was no one found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He can fulfill the scriptures. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The treasure, the kingdom of heaven, has been given to us at the cost of the life of the lamb. The only one who was ever worthy when the world comes to an end and the angels come to sift the wheat and the weeds, the good and the evil, who is the good? Who is the wheat? How can anyone be sure they will be counted among the righteous? Who are the righteous? When you continue to listen to Jesus' words, isn't it those whom he calls to follow him? It says in Romans 8.30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. And how are they justified? In his great love, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, those that he called. And because the scriptures declare it, are we not then covered by the blood of the Lamb? And Romans chapter 8, verse 30 finishes with this. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's your treasure. There's your good news. The good news isn't good news without the bad news. And the bad news is that we're all sinners. We're all damned. We've all sinned. God purposed us for good and for his glory, but we rebelled from the first man to the current state that we're in now. And as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We all deserve to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Yes, even me, maybe perhaps me most of all. But Christ is the one that predestines, he calls, and he justifies, and then he glorifies. Don't you see? The treasure is Christ. The kingdom of heaven is Christ. Jesus is the kingdom because that's where the king is. There is the kingdom. And if Christ is with the bride that is his church, where is his kingdom? If Christ is with his bride, that is his church, where is his kingdom? Right now, our hope is Christ. Let me tell you something. The world will say all these things. They will get you down. We live in this world. We will be inundated, bombarded. We'll be hit across the face, across the chest and the stomach. Our wind is going to get out of us. But our hope is in Christ you know what that means? He is our assurance and our sure 
reward. Our faith is in Christ. You know where we place our faith? You know where, what, what we hold on to? He is our rock and our redeemer. Upon him and his word is where we stand. And our love is from Christ. God is love. And he gives us himself. This is the love that it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is the love that never fails. This is why we can love him and love one another. It's because of Christ. This is how Christ sets up the kingdom of heaven and those that he calls are invited into his presence. Those that understand this now, if you understand it, this is the characteristic Christ is telling you. If you truly understand what the true treasure is, what treasure really is, then what are the characteristics that you hear and understand and act in? It's with urgency and with joy. This is what Christ is telling us in the parables. This is Christ revealing to, him, to us himself who he is, what he did for us, and what kind of promise we have in him. Christians are not the ones who say, you know what, life has got you down. I can guarantee you life will get you down. So you know what we do? We look inside ourselves and we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. That's not what Christians say. Christians recognize something. We're like the ones in the desert. We got bitten by snakes. We're dying. There's poison. And there's nothing that will save us. Snakes invaded the camp. We've been bitten and we're writhing in pain. And Moses sets up this little statue of a snake on a stick. And he says, if you look upon this statue, this stick, then you will be saved. Christians recognize that we don't look inside ourselves to be saved, but we look up. And when we look up, who do we see? We see Christ crucified. And we know that because of Christ's crucifixion, we have received redemption for our sin, for our pain, for all the suffering that we have gone through. Christ is the one that redeems us into himself. That is the assurance and promise we have in his word. That is what the Christian stands on. We stand on Jesus and his word, and then who can ever take that away from those that he calls? Who can ever take that away from his disciple? So if you're holding on to something, and you've recognized that there is a treasure of infinite value, what would you do to get that treasure? And if you've looked all your life and you couldn't find it and you finally find it, what is the emotion that would be pouring out of you? This is what is given to you by the grace of of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why we can now stand and say, I have assurance 
And this assurance is given to me by the blood of the Lamb because he is worthy and he gave it to me. Let's pray.